Welcome to this week's edition of What in the World. My name is Andre, and I'm being joined by Ryan. And Ryan, how are you doing today? It is a rainy afternoon in Washington, D.C., Andre. But other than that, uh, doing pretty well. Uh, It is Yom Kippur. I'm looking forward to eating something uh, in a few hours as we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, Ryan, have you ever watched This Is Us? I have not watched This Is Us. There's this episode, season five, episode eight, featuring this Indian and Argentinian couple. And uh, they sort of inspired the show. This guy is apparently responsible for the technologies that led to FaceTime. But I somehow ran into them at a coffee shop yesterday. They made me open a window. They thought I worked there. And then they introduced themselves to me as the couple from This Is Us. And I was sort of a bit skeptical initially. But then I looked it up and it was really legit. And their whole love story and everything is super inspirational, just crazy inspirational. And he, this guy, his technology has made the fact that we're on Zencaster right now or on FaceTime uh, possible. So it was sort of an interesting, weird meetup, but a meetup I'm sort of grateful for. Uh, but yeah, Ryan, uh, so at the top of global news today, uh, we have rapper and newly crowned virologist Nicki Minaj, who has made some very dubious claims about the vaccine. Uh, she has claimed that her cousin's friend in Trinidad took the vaccine and that adversely affected his nether regions. Uh, this, uh, these claims have, of course, elicited international reactions, uh, including from Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, who, quote, said, I am not as familiar with the works of Nicki Minaj as I probably should be, but I am familiar with Nikki Kanani, a superstar GP of Bexley who has appeared many times before you, who will tell you vaccines are wonderful and everyone should get them. The White House under President Joe Biden has also offered Nicki Minaj the opportunity to speak with a doctor to answer her questions. And uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has also disputed those claims from uh, Dr. Minaj, or as she would like to be, <laughs> Dr. Minaj. And even the Trinidadian uh, health minister delivered an entire press conference to address these allegations. Of course, Nicki Minaj is wrong on the vaccines. Uh, I don't really know how she became a virologist on Twitter, but she actually responded to the UK prime minister, Boris Johnson, saying, quote, I love him, even though I guess this was a diss. The accent, ugh, yas, boo, love heart face. What I can't believe we have to cover this, but I guess we do because now we're looking to celebrities for a vaccine and virology advice. But I mean, this is I mean, this is ridiculous. Ryan, they said Donald Trump would never be president. He was just a celebrity. And here we are. So you never know what type of influence these people can have. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad this is the first thing that we're covering for, for this. A week. very important story. Yes, it is. <laughs> Let's move on, though. Yep. And talk about Australia. Uh, So the US and the UK, along with Australia, have unveiled a new security partnership to counter Chinese military influence. And so what this partnership is, essentially, um, is the ability for Australia to acquire a nuclear-powered submarine, a series of them that will allow uh, the Australian Navy to counter China's own nuclear-powered vessels in the region. And uh, one a country in particular was not very happy about it. It wasn't actually China, Andre. It was France. Well, before we dig into France, Ryan, first of all, why does Australia need a nuclear submarine when they don't have nuclear weapons? It's a great question. So the actual the, the nuclear uh, 
technology is is used to ensure that these submarines can be um, under the surface for longer periods of time because the mm. uh, diesel electric submarines have to surface more often, and so that will you know makes them subject to being uh, seen under you know surveillance or reconnaissance uh, easier. Uh, and so this will allow the Australian Navy to navigate with more deterrence capabilities because they can be under the water for longer periods of time. Mm. I, I don't think France has been this pissed about a U.S. policy decision since Iraq in 2003, actually. But uh, apparently France, they canceled a gala dinner in Washington, D.C. that was meant to celebrate the U.S. alliance. They canceled it because of this. Why are they so pissed? Well, so France was actually slated to sell their diesel electric um, technology and subs to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of just a, this is a, a business dispute, uh, as you would have it. Uh, but of course, I, I don't think this is going to have any sort of you know long lasting negative effect on this um, relationship, particularly US, um, UK, uh, France relationship, this you know, this kind of three-way relationship. Of course, Australia is kind of just in the middle. They, you know, can decide where they want to do business and whom with. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that you see this kind of diplomatic uh, scuffle uh, over this, uh, over these submarine sales. And <laughs> I mean, I guess France probably just feels a bit left out. I mean, Australia. I mean, you know, as you said, Australia and France had this deal from 2016 where France would provide these submarines, but they were less advanced than the American submarines were. So America sort of just swoops in, and, you know, comes in with this business deal. And I mean, it's it's good for Australia, right? I mean, Australia is obviously a key player in the Indo-Pacific right now. Remember, it is a part of the quad, uh, US, India, Japan, and Australia, which has sort of taken more of an antagonistic approach to China. Uh, especially as they pledge that they want a free and open Indo-Pacific. But uh, very interesting stuff, probably going to blow over fairly soon, as always. But uh, there is actually another reason France is in the news. Uh, French, The French military forces have actually killed a leader of ISIS in the Sahara, uh, Adnan Abu Walid al-Sarawi. Uh, again, so it's not just the United States that engages in counterterrorism operations uh, in, in the continents of Africa. Of course, France, who has a very long history, particularly a colonial history, um, in, in the region, they are always engaging uh, in counterterror operations. And so this is, um, it was reported that Macron uh, personally ordered uh, this attack. Um, and so Al uh, Sarawi was responsible for killing six French aid workers uh, and their Nigerian colleagues last year. And the group is also behind a series of other attacks against US and, um, um, and other in-country personnel. And so uh, as we talked about, right, the ISIS caliphate has more or less been defeated, but there are still remnants and cells around the world. And so the, the ongoing fight against ISIS and you know their other uh, linked organizations is, is still in full force. Yeah, absolutely. And this group is also responsible for an attack that killed four Americans in Niger. And more recently, there were some uh, French aid workers in Niger who were killed. Uh, in some of these attacks. Uh, Ryan, uh, there's another interesting... Well, actually, before I go into that, Afghanistan. Any updates on Afghanistan? The Taliban's now putting in their government of terrorists in power. Uh, Haqqani's there. He's a known terrorist. I was sort of looking through this post today. 
And a lot of the folks on the in the new government of Afghanistan have bounties on their heads. We're on the most wanted, are known terrorist supporters for the U.S. and did some time in Gitmo as well. Yeah. So it appears that uh, the Taliban are not getting along with one another. Uh, there seems to be a struggle within the Taliban government uh, over a, a variety of things from the direction of where the country should go to who's being put where. Remember, this is an acting government as is. So there's no actual permanence to the individuals who are in government at the moment. They're very well uh, may be the case where a lot of these individuals are actually going to stay in these positions. But I just think it's very interesting. As we talked about last week, the Afghan government's going to, the Afghan government under the Taliban rule are now going to have to figure out how to effectively govern. And when they can't figure out, um, you know, their own politics of their of their government structure, I don't know how they're going to govern a country the size of Afghanistan. Yeah. And I mean, many people have assumed and thought that Afghanistan's going to descend into civil war. Of course, we saw civil war take over the country for a few years after the Soviets left Afghanistan in 1989. Of course, the Taliban came out on the winning side of that first civil war. But right now we have ISIS-K that's, you know, active in Afghanistan. We also have Al-Qaeda that's coming back into Afghanistan and many former intelligence officials, Michael Morell being one of them, who was one of our uh, first guests on this podcast, has stated that, you know, Al-Qaeda can come back. A lot of other people have said that they are already coming back and they may very well become active. And you're likely to see other militant groups enter Afghanistan and try to make a play for power. So the situation in Afghanistan, even if the Taliban rule it, likely won't be stable. Absolutely. And that means, again, as we talked about, uh, particularly during our 9-11 episode, the, the biggest fear for uh, the U.S. foreign policy and national security community is uh, a situation in which the al-Qaeda or a similar terrorist organization can train and operate out of Afghanistan and then therefore levy attacks against the United States and other allied countries. And so as we're, we're 20 years um, on from 9-11, I mean, that is always in the back of everyone's mind who are, who are working to protect the United States and, and other countries. Yeah. Ryan, did you hear about the World Bank story today? So basically, there was a report that there was an investigation done into this World Bank report, basically an annual report that the World Bank does. And it basically discovered that Kristalina Georgieva who used to be the chief executive of World Bank and is now the chair of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, that we've heard so much about, may have directed, may have told her staff to try and inflate economic indicators for China, to basically make China's positioning on this World Bank report look a lot better than it was to be. Uh, China is the third largest, I think, shareholder of the World Bank. The US and Japan are the first two. And a lot of people don't want to piss off China. A, a lot of people don't want to piss off China just because, of course, as we see, China is getting a lot of political and economic influence in the world. So this investigation has found that people within the World Bank have tried to inflate China's numbers, make them look much better than they were. China was supposed to fall, actually, in its rankings between 2017 and 2018. But there are ways evaluated to figure out if like, okay, can we actually improve China's standing? That's a bit, that's a bit sketch, isn't it? Yeah, that's, a, that's very concerning, just because um, there are many international organizations that analysts have kind of looked at and said the, the influence of China is, 
is concerning, right? That they're they're you know have, they have this political influence, particularly because they are, are a large financial donor or contributor to these organizations, but also because of the the placement of certain officials of certain Chinese officials in these organizations is, is meaning that China may have undue influence on some of these international organizations, not to kind of peddle maybe some conspiracies, but of course this was a concern with the WHO. Um, however, the leadership of the WHO have categorically denied. Uh, any allegations sure, of yeah. uh, undue influence, but it, it's a thing. I mean, it's a concern. I, I mean, mean, look, the chief executive of the World Bank was involved in this stuff, and she's now the head of the IMF. Yeah, it's uh, isn't isn't that shocking? Like that's crazy, but not not so crazy if you you know you believed in this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, these organizations are so crucial not only for um, developing countries, particularly low and middle income countries who depend upon IMF assistance, World Bank assistance uh, to engage uh, in the international community and to kind of, you know, take care of their own economies and financial situations. Uh, but every country in the world is involved in the World Bank, more or less, as well as the IMF. And so when you have any sort of, you know, potential undue influence or maybe favoritism uh, or maybe some sort of you know bad actors within the organizations, it kind of casts a very negative guise around these international institutions. And of course, there's already many countries around the world, particularly illiberal countries, that say, "Look at these you know large U.S. backed institutions. Look how corrupt they are." And so it really is uh, unfortunate. Of course, you know China is is very skilled at. Um, in, engaging in these international institutions, even though they don't always necessarily abide by them, uh, but, they but they are work within them. But they were exactly they work within them, and that is a a huge problem. They work within them, and I mean, look, you know, Ryan, I've been doing the Sri Lanka miniseries for a few weeks now, and we just actually wrapped up an interview with the State Minister for Regional Cooperation, uh, basically a de facto deputy foreign minister. And one of my questions was. Sri Lanka's economy is in dire straits. It's in a debt crisis, for for lack of a better term. Uh, and they're still not going to the IMF for funding. And many countries, of course, have serious questions about organizations like the IMF. For example, India uh, went to the IMF for loans in the early 1990s. And as a result of them getting IMF assistance, their entire economy had to open up, structured relief, right? So there are these, uh, some countries just are, not as you know willing to go to these organizations because of those concerns and something like this something like this really you know breaks the credibility of many of these international organizations at a precarious time when we have this populist movement really taking over the world and many many people are having doubts about globalization and so on. So it's it's a very concerning story. The story just broke a few hours ago. We'll probably have more on that uh, on the next edition of What in the World. But Ryan, uh, I sort of want to bring it back home for a bit because we commemorated the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 uh, on this past Saturday. And we saw actually a great speech by former President George W. Bush, uh, where he actually called out and said that domestic extremists, domestic terrorists, are just as bad as foreign terrorists. This certainly drew a bit of a harsh reaction from some who are considerably more on the far right of the party in the Republican Party. I think President Trump even denounced President Bush's claim, but Bush has a point. 
Bush has a point. One of our biggest threats is domestic terrorism. One of the biggest focuses of this podcast in recent months has been on domestic terrorism, uh, especially when you see what happened on January 6th. Uh, Bush said foreign and domestic terrorists are both, quote unquote, children of the same foul sort of source. And uh, I don't think Bush had ever thought that he'd had to deliver a speech like that during a commemoration of 9-11. But I mean, yeah, we have threats both at home and abroad. And Andre, I mean, I'm living in Washington, D.C., January 6th, you know, kind of feels like a long time ago. But this Saturday, uh, there is going to be a justice for J6 rally in support of the defendants facing the charges related to the January 6th insurrection. So the Capitol is being locked down. I mean, they're putting up non-scalable fencing. The police presence is increasing. I I, I believe that they've um, sought support from the the National Guard. And so they're not messing around now. I mean, considering what happened on January 6th and the fact that there's there's this kind of right-wing extremist rally occurring in D.C. this weekend, uh, I mean, the the city of of Washington D.C. Uh, is prepared to defend the Capitol and defend all federal property, and it's uh, again just kind of shows that there are still people in this country that don't believe in in this system that are seeking to undermine it, our, our democracy, our freedoms, and so uh, really really concerning. Yeah, I mean, speaking of January sixth, Ryan, there's a new the new Bob Woodward and Robert Costa book that's coming out called Peril. That's about the 2020 election, but really had some interesting and very controversial excerpts about the aftermath of January 6th uh, regarding some actions done by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Mark Milley. Did you read about those? Yeah, so I, you know, I actually happened to talk about it today, um, just with you know some some of my friends here, and so yeah, I mean, what what the the actual kind of I think the biggest takeaway is that. General Milley, right, the joint uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was going was had this call with his Chinese counterpart because of the concerns of of a potential strike against China by President Trump, and so it was more so a, a call to inform the, the Chinese counterpart of this potential scenario uh, because no one wants to engage in a nuclear war with China. I mean, the United States certainly Absolutely. does not want to. The Chinese don't want to. I mean, that's that would just wipe out swaths of this country. And so there's been kind of a, a storm, a media storm around this from you know both sides of the aisle saying that you know he breached his chain of command or you know whatever, he should be thrown in jail for this. Uh, under kind of what I'm aware of, it, it, I, I believe he was authorized to do this. And he had a meeting with 15, he, on, I think it was on that call, he had 15 other people, officials from the administration in on that call. Is that true? I believe so. So I believe he wasn't acting alone. This was not a personal call. This was in his official um, capacity. And this was done, I believe, with authorization from above him. And so, you know, while, yeah. of, of course, you know, there's calls for insubordination, whatever, the fact that this had to happen is insane. Well, I, I mean, mean, the Chinese were freaked out. Of course. I mean, the Chinese had just seen the, the country's national legislature uh, being run amok by these thugs and domestic terrorists, right? They had just seen this happening. The president obviously seems to have like lost it mentally. And uh, I mean, you know, we've I think we've talked about this in the past, right? The whole idea of madman theory and Donald Trump, sort of similar to Richard Nixon. Now I have a Nixon analogy that I'll sort of bring up in a little bit. But I mean, Trump is unpredictable. And, you know, there were concerns that, oh, like, could he bomb Iran? 
But I mean, the Chinese were obviously freaked out because tensions were pretty high between the U.S. and China at the time. They were high under President Trump. And the, remember, the president is the guy with the, with the access to the nuclear football. So, I mean, General Milley did state that he was conducting the duties of his office. He was going through the proper channels to do this and communicate that. But the fact that the Chinese generals were so concerned and so freaked out. I mean, that's really saying something. Uh, Ryan, do you do you know about sort of the situation that was occurring with Richard Nixon towards the Watergate period when he was really sort of down and in the dumps? You are the resident expert on all things Nixon and Watergate, so go for it. Excellent. So basically... That last year of Nixon's administration, you know, Watergate was happening, investigations were swirling his, you know, he had gone from winning a 49-state landslide with 61% of the vote in 1972 against McGovern to, you know, being called on to resign. His approvals were down in the dumps. And Nixon at this time, he was a raging alcoholic. He was drunk and depressed. So uh, Schlesinger, the Secretary of Defense for Nixon, was actively concerned that Nixon could potentially launch a nuclear attack on some random country. So Schlesinger notified the chairman of Joint Chiefs and other relevant people, I think including Kissinger. Kissinger was also involved with this, saying that if the president tries to declare a war or tries to launch a strike on anyone, please come to me first or go to the Joint Chiefs. You need our permission to make sure that that happens, because clearly the president is not in the right mental state of mind. And Nixon was a known practitioner of the madman theory. There was a story of him once sending B-52s, I think, with nuclear bombs on them towards the Soviet Union right around the time that the uh, the peace talks in Hanoi were occurring, I believe. I think the, not in Hanoi, but the, the Paris peace talks with Vietnam. Uh to basically say that, hey, Soviets don't get involved in our stuff in Vietnam. Uh, and of course, in Vietnam, we also saw the Christmas Day bombing associated with Cambodia as well. And it's all madman theory, right? So when you have a quote-unquote madman in office, you don't really know <laughs> what they're going to do. And I, I say madman as in abiding to the madman theory. Nixon, drunk, depressed, unpredictable. Trump, really in this quote-unquote mental decline after January 6th, trying to sort of steal the election, really, mental decline, right? So you don't know what he's going to do. And obviously the Chinese, who have had antagonistic relations, are going to be really, really, really paranoid. I, I mean, it, but it scares you, right? Because in terms of like the nuclear football and who has the power to launch a nuclear attack, I mean, there are many different opinions on this, but right now it's the president. And it makes you wonder. It, it definitely does. But, and, you know, Nixon uh, was out. He resigned. Trump uh, was lost the election to Biden. And so, you know, we'll see. We'll leave. I had a definitely scary stuff. We'll leave that there. I got a couple more stories, Andre, before we wrap for the day. You talked about um, this ban by Yair Bolsonaro. Um, the, the president of Brazil who wanted to remove social media posts, this ban on removing social media posts, actually. It was actually uh, so it was overturned uh, in Brazil. And so he will not be able to actually do this. This was a kind of a last ditch attempt to kind of sway the upcoming elections. Of course, he's incredibly unpopular. And so he's likely on his way out, but of course, is engaging in more authoritarian tactics to ensure that he 
has some sort of political future. So social media bans over, can't really do anything about that. I mean, the guy, I mean, as I said last week, he's really trying to sort of pull a Trump and try to really steal the election. I think he knows he's going to lose. Like, he's very unpopular right now. He has like a 30% approval rating or something, but he's already saying that it's going to be rigged. He's already saying it's going to be rigged. So... I don't even know. That is that is the new tactic of of those who <laughs> see their their you know their political future in flux or the prospect of them losing is that you know cry foul. But it seems to have been you know ineffective in Israel, in the United States, California and potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know you followed that very closely. Well, I live here, so yeah, exactly. So, but. You know, that not very domestic or not very internationally focused. That's more of a domestic matter. But anyway, you know, Newsom survived. Yeah. The, Ryan, by the way, there was a great uh, John Oliver bit, an episode actually on Lukashenko in Belar- Belarus. Uh, did you manage to see that? I haven't seen it yet. No, but um, I know that he's so, uh, John Oliver, bless him, has done some great episodes on strongmen. He did it on uh, Turkmenistan's Gurbanguly Berdimukhamedov, one of my favorite dictators, if my favorite, meaning most interesting uh, to make fun of. Um, and Lukashenko, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the longtime president of Belarus, is also a, a pretty close second. And so I'll definitely check that out uh, this evening, Andre. I'm sure he was you know, quite kind uh, to Lukashenko. You're going to get canceled for saying favorite dictators. Oh, everyone knows what I meant. But fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Any other last stories, Ryan, before we wrap up? The only last thing is that uh, the uh, the quote unquote president, kind of you know semi authoritarian slash strongman of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, is being investigated by the International Criminal Court. Seriously? Uh, oh yeah, seriously for crimes against humanity. Um, they are connected to his war on drugs, where he just these you know extrajudicial uh, killings and rounding up of people engaged in the drug trade, uh, and so. He is, you know, saying that they have no authority to do this, and his legal advisor said that, you know, there's these are, you know, baseless claims. But uh, the ICC can have a, a bite, particularly for countries um, like the Philippines. And so, while you know, countries like the United States don't, you know, have the the, the authority of the ICC is is non-existent because the U.S. is not a party. Uh, countries that are a party and are subjected to the ICC's jurisdiction uh, can be, you know, dragged before the court and sentenced for crimes against humanity and other, um, you know, crimes that violate um, the, the Rome statute. And so uh, very interesting to see what happens. He is, uh, again, um, a, a quasi dictator that is on his way out. Uh, and so he may very well be kind of dragged in front of the Hague. Well, I mean, he's running for vice president, though, and it's very likely he's going to win because I mean, again, like, I mean, you know, obviously, we have a very bad view of him here because we like human rights most of the time in terms of the u.s government's perspective but uh i mean he's very popular in the philippines isn't he he's quite popular but he is he's fairly popular he's like it's like a very populous sort of thing i mean but this is also a guy right who's who's bragged about killing drug dealers himself with a shot to the back of the head i mean and that's literally what he did and that is what he's being investigated for yeah so i mean uh Woof. That's yeah. rough. <laughs> it, it certainly is rough. And so uh, that is all we have for, for today's edition of What in the World. 
Uh, Andre, we have an awesome episode coming out on Monday with uh, Mark Polymeropoulos, a former senior CIA officer who has served around the world, notably in Afghanistan. Uh, he had, has a great book out, uh, and we talk about that book. We also talk about Havana Syndrome. Mark is among some of the first uh, CIA uh, officials and, uh, and operatives who has uh, come out saying that he has symptoms of this Havana Syndrome. We talk about it uh, in, in pretty good detail. Uh, it really is deeply concerning that our, our U.S. personnel are being targeted by some sort of device. And so be sure to take a listen to that uh, on this coming Monday. Andre, we're almost done with your Great Sri Lanka series. What's what's next? Uh, so we have an episode with the State Minister of Regional Cooperation in Sri Lanka, Tharaka Balasuriya. Uh, he's a younger sort of uh, government official, but he's basically functioning as a deputy foreign minister. We asked him a lot of tough questions. You'll see if he's able to answer those tough questions. Uh, in the course of the episode, we're actively working to get perhaps another leading person from government and then some other objective voices who can sort of distill and break through more of the biased and political voices we've been hearing. Uh, just because that's politics, right? You interview politicians, they're going to give you one side of the story and then the others will give you the other side. But that's all for us. Uh, thank you, folks. We'll see you soon. See you next week.